I believe in Christ, he is my king. With all my heart to him I'll sing. I'll raise my voice in praise and joy, in grand amens my tongue employ. Scriptures reveal the divine desires of the Lord in our behalf. Each of us should have a burning desire to search the scriptures diligently and daily to seek the will of the Lord in our life. Brothers and sisters, on very thin pages, thick with meaning, are some almost hidden scriptures. Hence we are urged to search, feast, and ponder. If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. Hi, welcome to Go and Do. We have the Easter lesson this week. It's not assigned to any specific section of the book. There's a lot of different verses in there. Um, but we decided to approach the lesson by reading the document, The Living Christ, and talking about some of the principles that are in that, the testimony of the apostles. First off, we want to also point out that in this trying time, we have a, an increased challenge of being able to share our come follow me thoughts with one another as we're kind of secluded in our homes around the world. But the gospel, we've been blessed with this with this program and we've been blessed with a gospel that is shareable and that we can communicate with one another. We hope that you will enjoy this, that you'll share it with others that you think might benefit from it. You may be seeing more guests that are telecommuting into the interview. Yeah. <laughs> or what do you call it? Yeah, this week we actually don't have a guest. It's just Feely and, and me, Daniel. But we hope to be able to figure out the way to continue to include uh, guests. It'll probably be remotely so that we can... Maintain the appropriate social distance. Right. This is really cool because we do kind of get a break from just the 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 reading and sequence but at the same time we've already talked about a lot of these topics and the book of mormon is essentially testifying throughout the entire book about what we're going to be talking about today he shall rise with healing in his wings it's essentially about the sacrifice that christ did for us that each of us is eligible for his sacrifice and that he has done everything so that we can live again both spiritually and physically yeah, for me, at the beginning of the lesson in the manual, on page 54, it just says, The ancient apostles were bold in their testimony of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Millions believed in Jesus Christ and strived to follow Him because of the words recorded in the Bible. Yet some might wonder, if Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world, then why were His witnesses limited to a handful of people concentrated in one small region? That last question is one that I think almost everyone who investigates the church or listens to it or or any religion investigates and wants to know about Jesus Christ asks themselves. 
And then it tells us why the Book of Mormon is important. It says, The Book of Mormon stands as an additional convincing witness that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, manifesting himself unto all nations. And then and he's the Savior of the whole world and offering salvation to all who come unto him. In addition, this second witness also clarifies what salvation may, means. This is why Nephi, Jacob, and Mormon, and all the prophets labor so diligently to engrave in these words upon plates to declare to future generations that they too knew of Christ and had hope for his glory. Um, and then it's an invitation. It says, This Easter season, reflect on the testimony of the Book of Mormon that the power of, the, that the power of Christ's atonement is both universal and personal. Redeeming the whole world and redeeming you. And for me, that's one of the reasons I enjoy the Book of Mormon so much is because it's it shares that Christ, his mission and his ministry wasn't just to a small group of people in Jerusalem. It He went to the Americas. And even when he was here and he departed after his resurrection, he said, other sheep have I. You know, we, we hear in the Bible him say, other sheep of I that are not of this fold. And then we think of the people in the Book of Mormon, mm -hmm. which then lets us know really that Jesus Christ is the living Christ of all the world. Yeah, and we only have two accounts, right? We have the account in Israel and we have the account in the Americas. But that's not to say that those are his only sheep. And I think that's kind of what this point is trying to make is everyone, everyone, regardless of their geography, if they're a child of God, then he is their savior, right? I think that's a universal principle that we have to understand that even though all we have are the records of these places and the words of these prophets, there were probably others receiving revelation of this, of these truths. And you think about it that way, God is not going to be exclusive when it comes to something that's like this that's so universal well one of the reasons i think christ was rejected in the bible in the new testament rejected by his own was he came to tell them these perceptions and cultures and traditions that you have established that just say only other israelites you can deal with or only other jews he was highly criticized with when he approached the Samaritans and the woman at the well and other individuals whom they deemed unworthy, Outsiders. unclean, yeah, not part of the club. Yeah. And ultimately that contributed to the reason they got so riled up and killed him. Um, and when and one of the things he did, one of the first things he did when he resurrected was he asked loveth thou me three times again and every time he said feed my sheep meaning now go and share this message with others and he meant others all over the world and we see that same pattern in the book of mormon where he has called prophets he has worked with them with alma and with Alma the Younger, with Nephi, with Jacob, and they once they know the gospel, it's their duty now to be sent, to be messengers to others. Um, and what what separates us from Christ 
is our own decisions. Yeah, I think it's um, the different sections of, of this lesson are kind of broken up. First, it talks about the resurrection, then about um, the atonement where he suffered for us and how it, how the atonement serves to cleanse and, protect, and perfect us. And uh, it's interesting that it would start the, with the resurrection. I mean, it makes sense because it's Easter, but it's also kind of the last step in the, in the atonement. If you think about the, the chronology of the atonement anyway, where he did his ministry, he knew what was coming. He knew from the very beginning, uh, from the pre-existence, what was coming. That at some point he was going to have to suffer and give his life for everyone. But he also knew well beforehand that he would be resurrected. And so I think that that, even, even in his moment of greatest suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew that there would be reprieve. He knew that there would be a release from that and that he would live again. And he gives us that knowledge too through the prophets and through the scriptures, knowing that even if we have a very difficult, challenging, trial-ridden life, that there will be a release from that and that we will live again and that we will have glory if we do our part, right? Yeah. If in, we, all, we knew that he was going to complete the atonement. There was no question about that. But he had to do it anyway. He had to do that in order to achieve his full potential, in order to achieve his full glory. And that's the message that he gives to us. You can also achieve it if you follow the commandments, if you follow my example that I left. This is accessible to everyone too. Resurrection, everyone will get it regardless. Exaltation, you'll get it if depending on your obedience to the commandments. Right. One of the ways I, I've always learned this principle is that uh, when Adam fell two things were introduced into the world, physical death and spiritual death. The physical one being we are all mortal. We inherit that through Adam and Eve. That we're mortal, we have imperfect bodies, we're subject to sickness and deformities and any kind of thing, right? And the second one is we transgress or we're in a fallen state where we're, we're we have sin or continue to be imperfect and lack knowledge. I always look at it as we are infants needing to learn for ourselves what's good and what's bad. And in order to do that, we knew that we were going to make mistakes. Mistakes are part of the plan. Hence, we needed a Savior. And so our Savior, His resurrection and His atonement rescue us from our immortal our, well, our mortal, imperfect bodies, that we can receive resurrection again. We can be re reunited with our bodies. And our sins or our transgressions or our learnings, that we have to learn things in order to, off our own free will, choose good and reject evil. You know? And um, I think sometimes we get caught up in the punishments of sin or the transgressions or hell and burning fire forever you know this thought that some of you won't make it and so God prepared a place for you to suffer forever and in reality none of that is the case um, 
you will only suffer if you willingly with full knowledge know and continue to reject him we are given many opportunities and it's and that's where the gospel when when Christ is born and the shepherds and the angels show come to the shepherds and they sing hallelujah and they say these are the good news the good news is your savior is now born it's time for him to come and show you the way and carry out the atonement and the resurrection and redeem all of mankind and that we all get that um, we 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 all will be resurrected again and then based on our agency and choosing to repent and to improve and to follow him we can then be exalted you know dwelled with him and our heavenly father and our heavenly fa family forever if we didn't know all of this though it would probably change the way that we view death the way that we view our actions here on earth our motivations like it would change everything we might not be as motivated to do good one of the things we wanted to do for this Easter episode was go over the document the living Christ the testimony of the Apostles this was written and signed by all the Apostles around the around year 2000 January 1st 2000 is when it actually came out and it's essentially meant to be um, their collective testimony a document saying this is what we believe about the living Christ so we wanted to read it go kind of paragraph by paragraph so if you want to read along with us that would be great you can find it in the gospel library under the section Jesus Christ and it's the second document in titled the living Christ as we commemorate the birth of Jesus Christ two millennia ago, we offer our testimony of the reality of his matchless life and the infinite virtue of his great atoning sacrifice. None other has had so profound an influence upon all, the, all who have lived and will yet live upon the earth. He was the great Jehovah of the Old Testament, the Messiah of the New. Under the direction of his Father, he was the creator of the earth. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Though sinless, he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He went about doing good, yet was despised for it. His gospel was a message of peace and goodwill. He entreated all who follow to follow his example. He walked the roads of Palestine, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, and raising the dead. He taught the truths of eternity, the reality of our premortal existence, the purpose of our life on earth, and the potential for the sons and daughters of God in the life to come. He instituted the sacrament as a reminder of his great atoning sacrifice. He was arrested and condemned on spurious charges, convicted to satisfy a mob, and sentenced to die on Calvary's cross. He gave his life to atone for the sins of all mankind. He was a great vicarious gift in behalf of all who would ever live upon the earth. We solemnly testify that his life, which is central to all human history, neither began in Bethlehem nor concluded in, on Calvary. He was the firstborn of the Father, the only begotten Son in the flesh, and the Redeemer of the world. He rose from the grave to become the firstfruits of them that slept. As risen Lord, he visited among those he had loved in life. He also ministered among his other sheep, 
in ancient America. In the modern world, he and his father appeared to the boy Joseph Smith, ushering in the long-promised dispensation of the fullness of times. Of the living Christ, the prophet Joseph, Joseph wrote, His eyes were as a flame of fire. The hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was the sound of rushing of great waters. Even the voice of Jehovah, saying, I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth. I am he who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father. Of him the prophet also declared, And now after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters of God. We declare in words of solemnity that his priesthood and his church have been restored upon the earth, built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We testify that he will someday return to earth, and that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. He will rule as King of kings and reign as Lord of lords, and every knee shall bend and every tongue shall speak in worship before him. Each of us will stand to be judged of him according to our works and desires of our hearts. We bear testimony, as his duly ordained apostles, that Jesus is the living Christ, the immortal Son of God. He is the great King Emmanuel, who stands today on the right hand of his Father. He is the light, the life, and the hope of the world. He is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. God be thanked for the matchless gift of his divine son, the first presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve. One of the, one of the things that stood out to me was how in the document it kind of explains how Christ was Jesus Christ before his earthly ministry and after and that he is the Jehovah of the Old Testament, and that he was he was the creator of this earth under the direction of the Father. And I think that's one of those plain and precious truths that has been missing, and one of the things that the Restoration and the Book of Mormon have um, restored unto us again. And then... Um, I really like the, the paragraph where it says, We solemnly solemnly testify that his life, which is central to all human history, neither began in Bethlehem nor concluded on Calvary. He was the firstborn of the Father, the only begotten Son in the flesh, and the Redeemer of the world. And when we teach the plan of salvation, either in the lessons and manuals on the missions to primary kids, we always talk about how there was a council in heaven where the father proposed his plan and the opposition proposed his plan. And from the beginning, our Savior wanted to be an example and was willing to come and endure the atonement for us. Yeah. It's really important to recognize that he continues to be the perfect example 
um, like it says, his his life did not conclude on Calvary. He still lives, but he's in, he's doing the perfect example of enduring to the end. The end for him was not the end of his mortal life. The end for him, he's thinking about the second coming. He's thinking about the end of our mortal test, right? And how is he enduring to the end? Well, he's not sitting around, okay, I've done, I did my part. I'm just going to now wait until Heavenly Father tells me to go back down to earth. He's been actively doing things even after his resurrection, starting with Mary in the garden and all the way until there's been multiple times he's appeared uh, until the modern day. And even, you know, one of the most recent accounts that we have in the Salt Lake Temple to Lorenzo Snow, he appeared to him and told him, you will be the prophet, you know, and he tells that account, to, he told that account to his granddaughter and we have record of that. And I, I think it would be foolish to think that that kind of thing still doesn't happen, that he doesn't still communicate directly with his prophet. I think he's actively engaged in the gospel and in the restoration of his gospel here on earth and constantly seeking ways to, to be influential even today. He's a living Christ. It's not a dead document. You know, it's a living document. It's a living person. One of the sections in the lesson, it says, Jesus Christ took upon himself my sins, my pains, and my infirmities. And then it gives us a couple scriptures to look to. And one of the ones I, I, I really like is the one in Mosiah chapter 3, verse 7, where he says, And lo, he shall suffer temptations and pains of the body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every pore, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. So one of the principles that the lesson is trying to teach us is that Jesus Christ not only suffered for our sins, but he suffered for our infirmities, our discomforts, our broken hearts, more we often look at the Savior and the Atonement as a checking account with a negative balance that needs to be righted. And it's it's way more than that, you know. Sometimes those examples are good to portray his the amount of power he has to, regardless of how negative your bank account is, he can help you bring it back to where it needs to be. There's that aspect, but there's also things where just injustices, Things or, that you suffer that it wasn't your fault. Or right now, in the world, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of people that feel very confused. Um, and a lot of people that feel very scared about what the future might hold. And what, what do I do to best protect my family and provide for my family? The atonement covers those insecurities, that fear also. He gives you the opportunity to say, give me your burden, you know. And I think that happens primarily through service. It happens primarily through prayer. Um, at least for me, whenever I feel burdened, whenever I feel overwhelmed by circumstances, I turn to the Lord in prayer and I say, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what how to go forward with this. 
I don't know what the best course of action is. I'm feeling just generally confused and I need help. I just need peace and then I need help. And every time I've done that, it's come different ways. It's never like, okay, here it is. You know, sometimes it takes a little bit of more effort from me and more recognition and more gratitude. Um, It's really easy to start looking at things and saying, this isn't how I want it. This isn't how I think it should be and getting really worked up about that. But I think once we start to turn that those feelings into gratitude, well, at least this is going well. At least that's going well. At least we're making progress in this way. Um, we can't go to church anymore, but at least we're given the opportunity to have the Come Follow Me program so that we can still have the, the home-centered part, you know, even yeah. if the church support it isn't so strong well, right it's, now. To me, it was this very powerful message that the church is not a building. Yeah. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't a routine. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something we're trying to become. We're trying to become like him. And that we can continue to do that, continue to work on improving ourselves, drawing closer to the Lord. And it's kind of, it reminds me of when Alma and Amulek are preaching. And I forget the people, but they were, he noticed that they were humbled, that they had been kicked out of the synagogues. And he turns to them right away and he says, do you suppose that because you were kicked out of the synagogues, you cannot worship God? And he kind of goes along those lines to tell them, it's more than a building. Another one of the scriptures in Alma chapter 7, verse 11 through 13, where it says, And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, that this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sickness of his people. And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. And I really like this. Because I remember when I was younger, I was a Boy Scout, and we went on this hike called King's Peak. And it's uh, one of the highest peaks, I think, in Utah that you it's can hike. Peak, yeah. And uh, I remember we, we were given, uh, I've never done a hike like this. I've done hikes, but this was a serious hike, <laughs> several hours, very, a lot of climbing, a lot of altitude gain. And we were going to stay up there for a week. So we had to bring our water, our food, or a way to filter water, clothes, you know, tent, camping. So we were, we got backpacks. We we try to keep it to 50 pounds, 30, 40 pounds, something like that. But like always, you always put more in there than you should. <laughs> you think it's okay that you're going to make it because when you're out in the parking lot getting ready, it feels fine and you're very optimistic. And then you start the climb. And then as a pack, as a, as a group, we started, you know, some people had heavier backpacks and we started distributing the load to help them out. Some people were not in great shape, like me probably, and we're lagging behind. And our leaders were there and we always felt like the leaders were always there helping us, you know, and didn't think in our minds, they're going through this as well. <laughs> You know, they're having to carry their stuff and Mm -hmm. our stuff when it gets too heavy. You know, I bought brand new shoes, so I had blisters (laughs) so bad. 
you know, I I was very inexperienced the first time I did. The second time was much better. But I think about this about why why is it important that Christ suffers so he knows how to succor his people. Like he he knows what we're going through. Why is that important? And I think about that hike and I think about imagine that you're at the bottom of this great hike and right there is the savior to help you along and once he helps you whether at times he'll have to carry you whether at times he will lighten your load whether at times he may help he may just encourage you you know he if if you want him there he'll always be there but the method he helps you is one that he's going to help you to become a good hiker, mm-hmm. not just to reach the destination. You will reach the destination by focusing on becoming a good hiker, you know. And it may be that it's still a struggle. Yeah. It may be that he doesn't just make it so that you float across the trail, you know. You're going to have to still take the steps and you're still going to have to filter the water and you're still going to have to do all of all well, of your part. One of the things I noticed is the first time I went, I needed so much help that it was like a blur. It felt just like a painful experience. The second time I helped, I was more prepared. I was in better shape and I could focus on enjoying the journey and helping others, you know. And and just imagine that our Savior is trying to help us be like Him. So therefore, we can enjoy life a little bit more. So we can help others. And then imagine getting there and then having Him turn around and say, I got to go help Bob. And he goes back. And everyone that travels this path will travel it with Him. And that's where I think about the living Christ. The living Christ is a Christ that is there with you in the morning when you kneel to pray. He's there with you as you commute to work. He's there with you as you, as long as you invite him, as long as you continuously think of him. I mean, we look at the sacrament and one of the blessing, one of the advice or the conditions in the prayer is that that we may always remember him that we may have his spirit to be with him with us with them you know we we promise to keep the commandments to take upon him upon us his name to act as he would act to follow his teachings that we may always remember him and that we may have the spirit to be with us and that makes the difference that is what makes Christ alive in our lives. Talking about the sacrament, um, now two Sundays that we've done the sacrament in our home. And uh, it's been a really unique experience because I've never done that before in my own home. Um, but the the first week and, and the second week, but I, I chose... To do it in Spanish, um, in my house we speak both English and Spanish, and I wanted to do it in Spanish, and I hadn't done the sacrament prayer in Spanish since my mission. And so there I am with my wife and daughter, and I, I kneel down and I start saying the sacrament prayer, and immediately just the the strength of the Spirit was there. 
in my house where I play Xbox and we roll around on the floor and, you know, we do a bunch of crazy stuff and we're cooking and we're cleaning and we're doing all these things, suddenly became this place where the spirit was just as strong as in Sacramento. It felt just as strong as the celestial room almost. It was so strong. And it, I got a little bit emotional as I was praying because I had this flood of memories from my mission. I had a flood of thoughts about how blessed I felt that we were given this gift of the sacrament by our Savior to remember him. And even in a time where we can't get together with an organization of people in our church building, um, we're still able to serve one another and we're still able to have the opportunity to renew those covenants. And just a tremendous blessing that we have that maybe at the time the apostles didn't really understand how impactful or important that act of the Last Supper would be. Um, I think that they probably found out pretty soon once they realized that he wasn't going to be around anymore and that everything he said and did in that moment was meant to be taken on by them. Um, but just, just that opportunity to have the sacrament and to be reminded of the fact that he's there for us. And every week be reminded, if we remember him, we'll have his spirit with us. One of the things my last bishop explained to us, I was in one of the priest advisors at the time, and he was kind of giving all of the deacons, teachers, and priests a, a talking, not a talking to, but a explanation on the importance of the sacrament. And he was inviting us to make sure that we're there on time, that we're looking good, you know. But he was saying that think about the cloth over the tray of bread and water as literally a, a funeral. Like the Savior is there under that cloth laying there. And that if we were at a funeral of our best friend who gave his life for us, how would we act, you know? How would we act when we are sitting there thinking and reflecting over his life that he literally died and he's right there on that table for you? And I've never heard it explained that in that way, but it really impacted me because I thought, how would I be? Would I be flippant? Would I be checking my phone? Would I be thinking about things? Or would I be literally thinking about my best friend who's dead right there and I'm to reflect on him and his life that he gave his life so I could live you know and that really changed the way I I look at the sacrament and that's you know I'm 30 plus years old when when that <laughs> when I'm barely I think beginning to understand how important the sacrament is you know yeah I think to wrap up this lesson, um, we kind of wanted to share some of the words of some of the prophets and general authorities about the different instances in which Christ appeared on the earth after his um, resurrection. And the point being to show that he is alive and he continues to work with us and with his people. So we'll share those sound bites um, from different general conference talks and other and other other talks about 
each of the different times that he appeared and um, hope that you'll enjoy that. As we read, ponder, and pray, there will come into our minds a view of the three gardens of God, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden of the Empty Tomb, where Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. In Eden, we will see all things created in a paradisiacal state, without death, without procreation, without probationary experiences. We will come to know that such a creation, now unknown to man, was the only way to provide for the fall. We will then see Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, step down from their state of immortal and paradisiacal glory to become the first mortal flesh on earth. Mortality, including as it does procreation and death, will enter the world. And because of transgression, a probationary estate of trial and testing will begin. Then in Gethsemane we will see the Son of God ransom man from the temporal and spiritual death that came to us because of the fall. And finally, before an empty tomb, we will come to know that Christ our Lord has burst the bands of death and stands forever triumphant over the grave. Thus creation is father to the fall, and by the fall came mortality and death and by Christ came immortality and eternal life. If there had been no fall of Adam by which cometh death, there could have been no atonement of Christ by which cometh life. And now as pertaining to this perfect atonement, wrought by the shedding of the blood of God, I testify that it took place in Gethsemane and at Golgotha. And as pertaining to Jesus Christ, I testify that he is the Son of the living God, who was crucified for the sins of the world. He is our Lord, our God, and our King. This I know of myself, independent of any other person. I am one of his witnesses, and in the coming day I shall feel the nail marks in his hands, and in his feet, and shall wet his feet with my tears. But I shall not know any better then than I know now, that he is God's almighty Son, that he is our Savior and Redeemer, and that salvation comes in and through his atoning blood and in no other way. I once stood with my wife outside a tomb in Jerusalem. Many believe that it was the tomb from which the crucified Savior emerged as a resurrected and living God. The respectful guide that day motioned with his hand and said to us, Come, see an empty tomb. We stooped to enter. We saw a stone bench against a wall, but in mind, mind came another picture, as real as what we saw that day, 
It was of Mary, who was left by the apostles at the tomb. That is what the Spirit let me see, and even hear in my mind, as clearly as if I had been there. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and seeth two angels in white, sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they had have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father, and your Father, and to my God, and your God. I have prayed to be allowed to feel something of what Mary felt at the tomb as she recognized the Savior, and what two other disciples felt on the road to Emmaus as they walked with the resurrected Savior, thinking him a visitor to Jerusalem. You remember the account, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? They hurried back to Jerusalem where they found ten of the apostles and other disciples gathered together with the doors closed for fear of the Jews. They declared, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And the two men then explained what had happened on the road and how they had recognized the Lord when he broke the bread. While the two men were telling them this, suddenly the Lord himself stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be unto you. They were terrified and supposed that they were seeing a spirit. But he said to them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. He showed them his hands and his feet. They still could not believe, as they were so full of joy but wonderment. So he asked them, 
Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then he reminded them, Ye are witnesses of these things. Last Sunday, the Christian world celebrated Easter in remembrance of the resurrection when the risen Lord appeared first to Mary Magdalene and later that day to the ten apostles, Thomas being absent. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas, like so many then and now, said, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Have you not heard others speak as Thomas spoke? Give us, they say, the empirical evidence. Prove before our very eyes and our ears and our hands, else we will not believe. This is the language of the time in which we live. Thomas the Doubter has become the example of men in all ages who refuse to accept other than that which they can physically prove and explain, as if they could prove love or faith or even such physical phenomena as electricity. But to continue with the narrative, eight days later the apostles were together again, this time Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Singling out Thomas, he said, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas, astonished and shaken, answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. To all within the sound of my voice who may have doubts, I repeat the words given Thomas as he felt the wounded hands of the Lord. Be not faithless, but believing. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the greatest figure of time and eternity. Believe that his matchless life reached back before the world was formed. Believe that he was the creator of the earth on which we live. Believe that he was Jehovah of the Old Testament, that he was the Messiah of the New Testament, that he died and was resurrected that he visited these western continents and taught the people here, that he uttered, ushered in this final gospel dispensation, 
and that he lives the living Son of the living God, our Savior and our Redeemer. After the resurrection of the Savior, Peter and some of the disciples were at the Sea of Tiberias. Peter announced to them that he was going fishing. The disciples agreed to go with him. They seemed to have forgotten that they were called to be fishers of men. They fished through the night but caught nothing. In the morning, Jesus, standing on the shore, told them to cast their nets on the right side of the ship, and the nets were filled with fish. Jesus told them to bring in the fish they had caught. Peter and his associates landed 153. When they came ashore and they saw the fish being cooked on a fire of coals, and the Savior invited them to eat the fish and some bread. After they had eaten, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Lovest thou me more than these? Peter was an ardent fisherman. Catching fish was the livelihood from which the Savior had called him to become a fisher of men. After Jesus' death and resurrection, we learned that Stephen, he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. What a dramatic testimony of the Godhead from that disciple of Christ. Our message is taken from the writings of the Apostle Paul, given over 1,900 years ago. Paul was born as Saul of Tarsus, being both a Jew and a Roman citizen. He became a powerful persecutor of those who accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and King. Saul was not motivated by malice, but by the belief that he was working against an enemy of his Jewish faith. En route to Damascus to pursue his persecutions, a bright heavenly light suddenly enveloped him, and he fell helplessly to the ground. A voice asked, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? In response, Saul asked two questions. Who art thou, Lord? What wilt thou have me do? The Christ identified himself as Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Then he told Saul to go to the city of Damascus, where he would be instructed. Having been struck blind, Saul was assisted into the city by his companions. There Ananias, a disciple and servant of the Lord, restored Saul's sight and informed him that God had chosen him to know his will and hear his voice, that he was to be a witness unto all men the resurrected Christ. He was baptized by Ananias and from that time on dedicated himself to the upbuilding of the Lord's kingdom. When he was ordained, Saul became a great defender of the faith, a dynamic teacher of righteousness, and a fearless preacher of the wor- uh, to the world. He went first to the Jews in their synagogues, then subsequently made three missionary journeys, 
carrying the message of the resurrected Christ to many people. While on a mission to the Gentiles, he became known as Paul. His love for and interest in his converts found him returning to oversee their progress and writing them letters of exhortation. I have a great respect for the Apostle Paul. I admire his honesty, his courage, honesty, strength of faith, and deep testimony. I love his teachings and find them equally applicable to the people of today. He was specially chosen, a true witness of the resurrected Christ. Paul also taught explicitly about the resurrection. Know ye not, he asked, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. When the darkness had dispersed, a great multitude gathered around the temple in the land of Bountiful. 2,500 men, women, and children had come together as they were conversing about this Jesus Christ of whom the sign had been given concerning his death. They once again heard the voice Mormon tells us that it was not a hoarse voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear it to the center. Inasmuch as there was no part of their frame that did not cause to quake. Yea, it did pierce them to the very soul and did cause their hearts to burn. The first time and the second time the voice spoke. The people heard it but could not understand it. The record then states that again the third time they did hear the voice and did open their ears to hear it. And behold, the third time they did understand the voice which they heard and it said unto them, Behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased in whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. How few people in all history of the world have heard the actual voice of God, the Father speaking to them. As the people looked heavenward, they saw a man descending out of heaven and he was clothed in a white robe and he came down and stood in the midst 
in the midst of them. A glorious resurrected being, a member of the Godhead, the creator of innumerable worlds, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob stood before their eyes. Many years ago, I visited, the, for the first time, a wooded area of extraordinary natural beauty near Palmyra, New York. This area is known to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as the Sacred Grove. On the day of our visit, the bees were kissing the wild flowers and the soft zephyrs gently rustled the leaves of the great trees. It is a place of perfect peace and serenity. It was easy to believe that the heavens were opened and that the magnificent vision took place there. I refer to the awesome experience of Joseph Smith when he beheld God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ in the spring of 1820. There has been no event more glorious, more controversial, nor more important in the story of Joseph Smith than this vision. It is possibly the most singular event to occur on earth since the resurrection. Those who do not believe it happened find it difficult to explain away. Too much has happened since its occurrence to summarily deny that it ever took place. Some years later, still suffering under the impact of that happening, Joseph said, If I had not experienced what I have, I should not have known it myself. Young Joseph Smith, 14 years of age, lived with his family near Palmyra, New York. In the spring of 1820, Joseph, like many others, was caught up in the religious excitement of the day. Desiring to know the truth for himself and encouraged by the epistle of James, he knelt in solitary fervent prayer in that beautiful grove not far from his home. He was at first violently seized by the power of some actual being from an unseen world. In an effort to extricate himself, he exerted all his powers to call upon God for deliverance from this tremendous evil power. At this point, he said, just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description. Standing above me in the air, one of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Close quote. The message that Joseph received from the Father and the Son was that the full truth was not upon the earth, and that he should not affiliate with the religions of the day as well as other things of transcending importance which were not written. Joseph stated on that account. Many other things did he say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. Obviously, Joseph was overwhelmed by the occasion and the instructions he received. Joseph soon declared this marvelous experience to others outside his family. As a result, 
Much ridicule, contempt, and even hatred was visited upon him. His mother, Lucy Mack Smith, relates that after the first vision, from this time until the 21st of September, 1823, Joseph continued, as usual, to labor with his father, and nothing occurred during this interval of very great importance. Though he suffered every kind of opposition and persecution from the different orders of religionists, close quote, the prejudice and the hatred pursued Joseph until his martyrdom. Of this experience, Joseph said, I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of that light I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak to me, and though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true, and while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for so saying, I was led in my heart to say, Why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a light. I knew it. I knew that God knew it. And I could not deny it. Neither dared I do it. At least I knew that by so doing I would offend God and come under condemnation. On February 16, 1832, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were given a remarkable vision. The Lord spoke with words both wonderful and challenging. Listen to him. For thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me, and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. I am satisfied that he speaks here of his daughters as well as his sons. Infinite shall be the reward of each, and everlasting shall be his or her glory. In this same revelation, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon bear eloquent testimony concerning the Savior of the world, the Son of God. Listen to this. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Eliza R. Snow, speaking of the Kirtland Temple dedication, which she attended, said, The ceremonies of that dedication may be rehearsed, but no mortal language can describe the heavenly manifestations of that memorable day. Angels appeared to some while a sense of divine presence was realized by all present, and each heart was filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory." End quote. The divine manifestations that occurred in the Kirtland Temple were foundational to the purpose of the restored Church of Jesus Christ to bring to pass the salvation and exaltation of our Heavenly Father's children. As we prepare to meet God, we can know what our divinely appointed responsibilities are by reviewing the sacred keys restored in the Kirtland Temple. 
In the dedicatory prayer, the Prophet Joseph Smith humbly petitioned the Lord to accept of this house which Thou didst command us to build. One week later, on Easter Sunday, the Lord appeared in a magnificent vision and accepted His temple. This occurred on April 3, 1836, almost exactly 182 years ago from this Easter Sunday. It was also the Passover season, one of those rare times when Easter and Passover overlap. After the vision closed, three ancient prophets, Moses, Elias, and Elijah, appeared in committed keys which were essential to accomplish the Lord's purpose for His restored Church in this dispensation. That purpose has been simply but eloquently defined as gathering Israel, sealing them as families, and preparing the world for the Lord's second coming. For both Elijah and Moses to appear was a striking parallel with Jewish tradition, according to which Moses and Elijah would arrive together at the, quote, end of time. In our doctrine, this appearance accomplished the foundational restoration of certain keys given for the last days and for the last time, in the which is the dispensation of the fullness of times. The Kirtland Temple, both in location and size, was relatively obscure, but in terms of its enormous significance to mankind, it was eternity-shaping. Ancient prophets restored priesthood keys for the eternal saving ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This resulted in overwhelming joy for faithful members. On September 2, 1898, after receiving word of the death of Wilford Woodruff, Apostle Lorenzo Snow retired to a private room in the Salt Lake Temple. With the presidency of the Church now on his shoulders, he sought guidance and instruction from the Lord. When time passed silently, with no voice, visitation, or manifestation to comfort him, President Snow left the room in disappointment. Passing through the celestial room and out into the large corridor, a glorious manifestation was given President Snow. Later in life, while in the temple with his granddaughter, Ali Young Pond, he shared with her the experience that followed his pleadings with Heavenly Father. His granddaughter described the experience. One evening, while I was visiting Grandpa Snow in his room in the Salt Lake Temple, I remained until the doorkeepers had gone and the night watchman had not yet come in. So Grandpa said he would take me to the main front entrance and let me out that way. After we left his room, and while we were still in the large corridor leading into the celestial room, I was walking several steps ahead of Grandpa when he stopped me and said, It was right here that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to me at the time of the death of President Woodruff. He instructed me to go right ahead and reorganize the First Presidency of the Church at once, and that I was to succeed President Woodruff. Grandpa told me what a glorious personage the Savior is, and described his hands, feet, countenance, and beautiful white robes all of which were of such a glory of whiteness and brightness 
that he could hardly gaze upon him. Now, granddaughter, I want you to remember that this is the testimony of your grandfather, that he told you with his own lips that he actually saw the Savior here in the temple and talked with him face to face. Every appearance of Christ after his resurrection was intentional and purposeful. Through them he testifies of the prophecies of the infinite atonement and the existence of the Godhead. He calls us to repentance, he reminds us of his other sheep around us, and he demonstrated his direct involvement in the ongoing restoration of his church here on earth. I join my humble testimony with those we've just heard, that he lives, that he is actively involved in the gospel today, and that he knows each of us individually and loves us. We just need to have faith and follow his immaculate example the best we can. We share this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Book of Mormon is truly the keystone of our religion, and that a man and woman will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. And if you then go and do what he would have you do, your power to trust him will grow. And in time, you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that he has come to trust you. There is no end to the good we can do, to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel at all times and in all places, that the Spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.